All right. Acts chapter 27 is going to reside. And we have been on a two-year journey through this wonderful New Testament book, one of my favorite books, but we are now coming to the end of it. Only one chapter remains after we conclude our walk through chapter 27. But it is an incredible study of the New Testament church and how uh, God had worked to expand His kingdom uh, in the first century through the New Testament church. Uh, You'll recall that the book of Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke talks about the work that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. And then in the second part, the sequel, which is the book of Acts, Dr. Luke writes about the work that Jesus' followers does uh, while Jesus is in heaven as our great intercessor and our great high priest. And Dr. Luke now in the book of Acts talks about the work that you and I do through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to carry the gospel to every part of the world. So we see the expansion of the gospel all throughout the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul would be called to be the man who would be the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, the missionary to the Gentiles. So we have traced his journeys, three of those journeys to be exact, around the Mediterranean, planting churches, saving souls or, or leading people to the salvation of their soul, and then going back at a later date and helping those churches that he planted begin to, to grow. So we left off with the Apostle Paul last Wednesday night in our study about how he had been imprisoned in Caesarea, Caesarea by the sea. He was a political prisoner because he had been accused of blaspheming against the Jewish law, which was untrue. He had been accused of inviting a Gentile, a non-believer, into the temple and thus defiling the temple, which was not true. He had been accused of neglecting the law, which was untrue. All of these accusations that had been brought against him because the Jewish people were so outraged by the fact that he would go all around the Mediterranean into those synagogues, and he was preaching that the way you're made right with God is not through Old Testament Judaism, but now you're made right through... Uh, with God by uh, inviting his son, the Lord Jesus, into your life. Anyway, the Apostle Paul's rested. He's thrown into prison in Caesarea. His first um, appearance is before uh, Felix. And you'll remember where the Bible says back in chapter number 24 that uh, the Apostle Paul stands before the governor and he preaches to him in verse 25 about a righteousness that Felix didn't possess a temperance or a self-control that Felix didn't practice, and a judgment for which Felix was not prepared. And then from there, Paul would go back to prison, spend two more years in prison in Caesarea, and then he would go to to Festus, and Festus would hear Paul's matter. And then from, from Festus, Paul would go, of all people, he would go to King Agrippa, the king of Judea. And Paul would preach a message to King Agrippa that the ears of few men would ever hear. A message that would leave King Agrippa, some of the last words that he would say is, almost you persuade me to become a Christian. In fact, when Festus was there with King Agrippa, as they heard Paul talking and preaching, Festus said, Paul, much learning has made you mad. In the Greek, it literally means to have wheels in your head, that Paul, you have lost your mind. And Agrippa would say, almost you've persuaded me to become a Christian. That now leads us to chapter 27. And as we begin to embark on chapter 27, finally Paul is going to get to realize his dream. 
You remember what his dream was? Go to Rome. That's exactly right. All the way through the book of Acts, he's talked about going to Rome, going to Rome, going to Rome. And he wanted to preach to Caesar. And he wanted to preach to the intellectual center of the world at that time. And up until this point, his efforts to get to Rome have been thwarted. But now finally, he's going to get on a ship that in his mind is going to lead him directly to Rome, which tells us sometimes we have our own plans of how we think things are going to work out, but God gives us a little bit of a detour. And though Paul wants to go to Rome, God's going to give him a detour. And it is a detour that leads him through one of the worst storms that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. It was a hurricane or a nor'easter. King James uses the word eurocladon. So that's what you'll find in chapter 27, that Paul, on his way to Rome, has a terrible shipwreck, and once again, he is delayed from getting to the place that he wants to go and preach. So let me read it for you, and we'll move through this tonight in verse 1 of chapter 27. The Bible says, And when it was determined that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners. If you want to see how many aboard this ship, get on this ship, and they leave Caesarea, and they're going to head to Italy. Go down to verse number 37, and you will find the Bible says, And we were all in the ship, 203 score and 16 souls. 276 people are on this ship with the Apostle Paul. So this is not just a little, just a little dinghy. This is a large vessel to carry that many people. To leave Caesarea, they're going to, going to go uh, up to the northern coast of the Mediterranean, and they're going to try to follow that coastline all the way up to Italy. So, verse 1, when we, it was determined that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. And entering into a ship of Adra... Adra, Adra Matinium, uh, Matinium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedon, uh, Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul, or he greeted him. He gave him liberty to go to his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from this, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Now, Many times I've put up a map to kind of show you uh, the uh, track that Paul had kind of followed. Uh, as they leave Caesarea, one of the places that they were going to go was the tiny little island of Cyprus. And they hoped to be able to skirt the island of Cyprus because it was the time of the year where uh, weather was not going to be in their favor. And the storms could just pop up without any... Uh, any uh, notification at all or any signs at all. So they launched themselves. They sail under Cyprus, he says, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Now, I know that those places, they don't mean a lot to us in contemporary life. He's just telling us the track that he made. And there, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing to Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, scarce were come over against Nidus, 
the wind not allowing us or suffering us, we sailed under Crete against Salomon. And hardly passing it came unto a place which is called Fair Havens, nigh whereunto the city of Lacia. Now when much time was spent, when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, it was somewhere about in the month of September. The month of September. And it was not the best time to be sailing at that time of year. They, they, they harbor in a place called Fair Havens. And Paul says to them, verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with much hurt and much damage, not only of the, the lading or the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not uh, commodious or um, not a place you wanted to stay in winter, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete, and lie toward the southwest and northwest. So all of those places may not mean a whole lot to us, but Paul is telling us he went from here to here to here to here, and there was a reason for that. They're trying to avoid the dangerous September winds and the violent storms that could come to that part of the world. You know, even here in the United States, probably uh, on the East Coast anyway, uh, when is the worst time of the year for hurricanes? You know, it's August and September and October, those days uh, or those months like that. Uh, much the same was in the Mediterranean. And it was not going to be safe for this ship to travel. And Paul warns them that you need to dock and you need to stay, out, uh, stay here at this dock for the entirety of the winter. But um, the majority ruled on that ship, so they decided, no, we're going to go ahead and make a run for it. And we're going to try to get to Italy before we have any trouble. And then that opens up this incredible storm that you're going to see in verse number 13. Now, when we talk about a storm... We don't want to just talk about it in historical perspectives. We look at it with application that all of us have storms in our lives. We're either in one, or you just came out of one, or you're headed for one. But storms are part of all of our lives. Um, sometimes they're very intense, sometimes maybe not so much. But we all encounter those times of, of, of storms. This one that Paul was going to encounter uh, was, was very intense, very intense. Let's look at it. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had attained their purpose, loosed in thence, they sailed close by Crete. They thought, here we go. The weather's good, a nice little wind that's going to push the sails in our boat, and we're going to make good time heading to Italy. But not long after, look at this, there arose against it, King James calls it a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. Some translations render that a nor'easter. Some call it a hurricane. Now, I wouldn't want to be in a hurricane um, in my house if I was close to the coast, much less in a boat, would you? But yet, that's where he finds himself, in the middle of the Mediterranean, in a wooden boat, in the middle of a hurricane. Maybe, when you think about hurricanes, Maybe you're a hurricane over your life. Maybe it's been a battle with cancer. 
Maybe it's been a battle in a relationship somewhere, a battle with some kind of financial issue in your life. And it was so intense, you just didn't think you'd ever going to get out of it. We all have those kind, of th- those kind of times. Notice verse 15. When the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive and run in under a certain island, which is called Clauda. We had much work to come by the boat. They were trying to get a lifeboat together. And when they had taken up, when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship, fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, strake sail, and were so driven, and being exceedingly tossed with a tempest the next day, they lightened the ship. In other words, you can just see this ship rocking back and forth in this hurricane. And they begin to throw things overboard to lighten the load, to keep the ship afloat. The third day, we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. They're still throwing things overboard. And when neither the sun nor stars appeared many days. Don't you feel like that sometimes when you are in the middle of a storm? No sun shining in your life, that you can't even see the stars shining just because you can't see them doesn't mean it's not there does it god's sun's always shining the stars are always shining his grace is always sufficient but sometimes the storms in life create such a fog around us that we can't see it or we might not even be able to feel it but that doesn't mean it's not there because we live by faith don't we not by feelings feelings come and go feelings are up and down feelings change with the weather But the word of God is settled in heaven. And God says, I will never leave you, never forsake you. I may not pull you out of every storm, but I'll walk in that storm with you and I'll let you feel my presence and my calm and peace that passes all understanding. In fact, someone had just told me that this week, a situation they'd gone through. And how peace, how much peace that they had felt through that. And they said, I'd never felt it like that before. But it was God's peace in a very difficult situation that they were facing. So Paul said, that neither the sun nor the stars in many days appeared. No small tempest lay on us. All hope that we should be saved was taken away. That's how he felt. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened to me and not loose from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer. Now look at this. For there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, just the ship. How does Paul know that? First of all, he told them they shouldn't leave Crete. But now that they did, he said, now that you've done this, nobody's going to die. The ship's going to be lost. Look what he says in verse 23. Here's how he knows it. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and who I serve saying, don't be afraid, Paul. You will be brought to Caesar, and lo, God has given thee all of them that sail with you. Now think about it for a moment. In the middle of that boat being tossed around for several days, you couldn't see the sunshine during the day. You couldn't even see the stars during the night. So frightening, so scary. And Paul said, that night, The Lord stood with me. Isn't that a great passage? That that night, the Lord stood with me. 
I wouldn't trade those moments that God's done that in my life for anything, that he stood with me. I remember our middle son one night, he couldn't have been, oh, I know he wasn't two years old, fell off the bed. When he fell off the bed, hit the corner of the dresser at the bottom uh, with his head. And uh, instead of making a knot, it, it dented it in. Have you ever seen that? It kind of dented it in. The most frightening thing I think I've ever seen in my life. And we jump in the car and we rush him to the hospital, to the emergency room, not knowing what's going to happen. Um, anything, make a long story short, everything was fine. By the time we'd got there, it kind of popped back out as a knot and he was okay. Don't know if I was okay or Tina was okay. But in that moment, a fright where you feel absolutely helpless, you still know the Lord stands by your side and that God will be with you no matter what happens, no matter what the situation. Paul, in the worst of the worst of the worst, in a storm in the middle of the sea, not seeing the sunshine or the stars for three days, he says, nonetheless, the Lord stood by me this night and he gave me this assurance, Paul, I'm going to be with you. Not only that, nobody in this ship is going to die. Later on, he says, when Paul communicates this to the people, he says, not even a hair on your head is going to be harmed. Which reminds me of the Hebrew children when they went through the fiery furnace at the command of King Nebuchadnezzar. They went through that fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar looks in that furnace that had been heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before, and he says, did we not put three men in the furnace? He said, I see four. And lo, the fourth looks like that of the Son of God. And the children, Hebrew children, come out of that furnace, and the Scripture says their clothes did not even smell like smoke. And the hair on their head had not even been singed, because that night the Lord stood with them. So, Paul tells them this in verse 25. He said, Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe, God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. And now he talks about this shipwreck. Look how it unfolds. But when the 14th night was come, how long had they been in this hurricane now? Two weeks. How long has your hurricane lasted? This one was two weeks long. And they were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. They sounded, look at this, they test the water depth. It says 20 fathoms, about 120 feet deep. They go a little further, they sound again. It's about 15 fathoms or about 90 feet deep. And fearing lest we would have fallen upon the rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern. And uh, one translation says they prayed for the day. That, Lord, this is all we can do. We've lightened our load. We've thrown things overboard. We've thrown the tackle overboard. We're just going to drop these anchors, and we're going to hold on with everything that we have. And sometimes that's all we can do is hold on and say, God, I don't know what to do, but I know you know what to do. So the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, and they had let down the boat into the sea, the lifeboat, under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship. And Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. You remember, you remember Noah built the ark? And for 120 years, uh, he worked to build the ark. If you've never been to the ark up in uh, is it Kentucky, I believe it is, isn't it, Tina? Tina and I went up there a few years ago, three or four years ago, two or three years ago, something. 
And it's an incredible, incredible sight to see. And I would encourage you to go see that. It's a life-size replica, a reproduction of the ark that Noah would have built. Uh, but it is incredible. But when Noah built the ark for 120 years, he builds that ark. And he preaches that judgment is going to come in the form of rain. And that the only way to be saved from this rain and this flood that will, will, will be a result of that is to come into the ark. Come into the ark. The world scoffed at him. The world laughed at him. And in the end, only Noah, his wife, their children, and their children's wives were saved because they were the ones with enough faith to believe you've got to get in the ship and you've got to stay in the ship. That is a picture that's, listen, that's a picture of salvation. That's a picture of Christ. In fact, do you know that that ark looked more like a coffin than anything else when you look at the dimensions of it, which tells us that a man's got to die to himself and trust Christ if he has any hope of eternal life. Paul said, except you stay in the ship, everybody will die. Verse 32, the soldiers cut off the ropes of the lifeboat and they let her fall off. And while the day was coming on, Paul told them to take meat, saying, This is the 14th day that you've tarried and continued fasting, and you've had nothing to eat. So I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. What great reassurance, what great comfort to know that God was going to be with them even in a difficult, difficult situation. When he had spoken, verse 35, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and when he had broken it, he began to eat. And they were all of good cheer, and they also took some meat, and we were in all the ship 200, three score, 16 souls, 276 people. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, still throwing things overboard, cast out wheat into the sea. And when it was a day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore into which they were minded if it were possible to thrust into the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves to the sea, loosed the rudder bands. I'm not, a, I'm not a, uh, a guy that knows a great deal about sailing and about boating and those kind of things, but this looks like something you could really have a lot of fun with, right? They loosed the rudder bands, Hoist up the mainsail to the wind. Makes you want to talk kind of like a pirate, doesn't it? And they made their way to the shore. And falling into a place where two seas meet, they ran the ship aground. The forepart stuck fast. The remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. So that's pretty dramatic, isn't it? That'd make a good movie, wouldn't it? Incredible shipwreck. Where are they? <laughs> They're not in Rome. That's where he wanted to go. But now they're going to be shipwrecked on a tiny island called Malita or Malta. And, and remember, now Paul wanted to go to Rome as a missionary. How does he go to Rome? A political prisoner. Paul wanted to take a direct route from Caesarea to Rome, to Italy. But God has different plans. And God says, no, Paul, you're going to go the long way around. And I've got a detour for you but I, because I can teach you some things during this shipwreck on the island of Malta that I can't teach you anywhere else. Do you know in the next, I believe it's in, a, in the next chapter, you're going to find when Paul washes up on the shores of Malta that he collects firewood and he's going to build a fire to get warm and he gets snake bit. You think, "Lo, what in the world else could happen to this guy? He just got out of prison. 
He just survived a hurricane. He's washed up on the shore. In fact, in the last paragraph, it says they all kind of swim to shore. And I can see him chilled to the bone going around picking up firewood just so he can start a fire and get a little bit warm. And the Bible says that a snake bites him on the arm. And you think, good Lord, could it get any worse? So let me go back. I'm getting ahead of myself. The ship was broken with the violence of the waves, verse 41, verse 42. The soldiers, look at this now. The soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to the land, and the rest some on, look at this, they're floating on boards, on broken pieces of the ship, anything that they can do to keep their head above water, kicking their feet as hard as they could go with the waves that were still crashing so hard that it destroys the hind part of the boat and drives it into the sandbar. And now they're trying to make their way up to this little island um, so their lives would be saved. Some on board, some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to the land. So storms come, do they not? Storms happen to all of us, sometimes very intense, sometimes very violent, sometimes unpredictable. Sometimes they're there for reasons that we can't explain. But you know, in whatever storm that we have, God stands with us. Whatever situation we encounter, God's promise that he would never leave us, that he would never forsake us. When you're arguing with your spouse, when your kids are breaking your heart, when you don't feel well, when the stock market loses a thousand points in one day, and 600 the next day, those are storms we think about. But listen, God is in control. Amen? I mean, God's in control. Our hope, I think, I think we're singing this Sunday, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the solid rock, isn't it? That's the solid rock. So as the Apostle Paul, expecting to go to Rome one way, he'll eventually end up there another way, but has this detour. And in this detour, God is teaching him, Paul, I'm still faithful to you in the storms. I'm still faithful to you in the shipwrecks. I'm still faithful to you in the snake bites. I'm still faithful to you when people want to plot to kill you. And in every way, Paul is a living example of what it means to suffer, even though you've tried to do what's right, because storms are a natural part of life. You know, you know what you read about Paul that is so encouraging to me when you read his story whether it is, it is here in the shipwreck or whether it's in Philippi or when he's writing Philippians, uh, when he's in jail writing Philippians, writing Ephesians, the other Philemon, the other prison epistles, when he's in prison or in the shipwreck or wherever it is, you never see him expressing that he feels sorry for himself. In fact, when he's writing Philippians, and again, he's in prison, he said, I have learned in whatever state I am in therewith to be content. When you read his resume in the book of Corinthians, Paul said, I know what it's like to, to suffer peril of robbers, peril of my countrymen. Uh, he said, I know what it's like to be in the deep. I know what it's like to be hungry, to be cold, to be tired. And he says, I know what all of this is like. But in the end, he would say, 
I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. And I have kept the faith. That I have finished my course. I am now ready to depart, he says. I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. That's a nautical term as well. And I have fought a good fight. I faced the storms. I faced the critics. I faced the elements. I faced all the struggles of life, just like you and I do. Don't you want to be able to say when you come to the end of your life, I didn't just fight, but I fought a good fight. Don't you want to be able to say that I kept the faith and that I finished my course? And then as the Apostle Paul would finish up by saying, Henceforth, the Lord has laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all of them who love his appearing. So, in this story of the shipwreck, violent, unpredictable, difficult, but God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And never leads us, never leads us where he's not going to protect us and not going to guide us.